Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Well, it's good to be with all of you this morning, worshiping our great God, and I I just love how that song proclaims the greatness of our God that we see throughout Scripture and throughout eternity. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. And as you're turning there, I would be wrong if I said I have some deep biblical truth for you this morning, a secret to walking through the trial that we have before us, because I don't. I would also be wrong if I said I have years of pastoral experience in dealing with the sorrows that we face, because I don't have that either. But what I do have this morning is a passage that has been a great encouragement to my soul this weekend. And it's my hope and prayer that this passage would be an encouragement to your soul this morning as well. So let's look together at this psalm. Psalm 11, for the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Thus reads the word of the Lord. May he 
encourage our hearts and our souls this morning with it. We've all asked ourselves the question, what if? Many times this question is a small thing, such as, what if I decide to skip breakfast this morning? What if I walk to work instead of driving? What if I decide to buy something in bulk versus at a convenience store? What if I use a different shampoo brand? What if I call in sick for work today? There's many times that it's a small thing like that, and, and we ask ourselves those questions frequently in the course of a day, and we weigh the outcome very quickly. This morning I got up and I looked at the number of ties that I have in my closet and I asked myself, what if I wear that one? Well, what if I wear that one? And I weighed the options quickly and I made a decision. So many times the what if question, it's, it's a small thing and we don't even think about it. But let's ramp it up. Sometimes these what-ifs can be bigger. What if I ask that girl out on a date? What if I lose my job? This past year, many people asked themselves the question, what if I test positive for this virus? And sometimes the questions... These what-if questions are so weighty that they keep us up at night. These can be daunting questions that loom over our heads. And we, we see a similar question in this psalm. It's right there in verse 3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? This, this question is, is the focal point of this psalm. It's the hinge point, if you will. Essentially, this question is asking if the world around us crumbles, if we reach our wits end, if all hope seems lost, what can we do? Some preachers and commentators call this the faith or flight psalm. And we will see these two main responses to this question in this psalm. And my goal this morning is to to give us a better understanding of the character of God and ultimately be able to answer the most difficult what-if question that we will ever face in our lifetime. And it's, like I said, it's my hope and my prayer that it's an encouragement to you this morning.
So let's look together at this psalm. It's a psalm of David. We can see the description from the very outset. And we're not entirely sure what the occasion is of this psalm. Some suggest that this psalm written by David was when David was in the mountains and caves fleeing from Saul. Still others suggest that this was when David was in Saul's service, trying to console Saul when he was troubled in spirit, when David was playing the harp and Saul attempted to kill David a number of times. Some people say this is when David wrote that psalm, but we're not entirely sure. David opens up this psalm with an assertion. And if, if you're looking to take notes this morning, this would be point number one, David's initial assertion. David's initial assertion. It says, in the Lord I take refuge. This assertion by David is simple, yet extremely profound. The concept of of God being a refuge is found all over the pages of Scripture, particularly within the Psalms. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my Savior, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very ready help in trouble. Psalm 91.2 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The concept of refuge, we can understand it generally, but to give us a very plain definition, it would be to seek shelter or protection away from something. Some of us have heard the illustration of a storm at sea that is raging, Waves that are crashing all around, and in this storm, there is a rock sticking up. And the waves are battering against it. The wind is howling. The sea tempests. But as you look closer at this picture of the rock, you see that there's a small cleft in it, and there's a bird silently resting under the cleft of this rock. That's the idea of a refuge, to seek shelter or protection away from something. In this case, the bird is seeking refuge, seeking protection away from the raging storm. And so David's initial assertion is a very strong one for us. To state it from the Hebrew Understanding that capital L-O-R-D means Yahweh, the covenant name of God. David is saying, in Yahweh, I take refuge. And this is the initial assertion upon which David's hope lies, regardless of what counsel he's about to receive. 
David's security in life is Yahweh. In life today, people seek security in many different things, whether it be finances, physical assets, family. But David comes right out of the gate and very simply yet profoundly claims in Yahweh, I take refuge. And so as we, as we come to the second half of verse 1, you're going to notice some parentheses there. Some, I'm sorry, some quotation marks. And it goes all the way down through verse 3. And what's happening here is that David is quoting from counselors that he has around him. There are individuals seeking to give David counsel in a tough situation, whether he be running from Saul or, or in Saul's court. We're not sure, but these counselors seek to give him good counsel. And so David says to them, How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot and darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so we see here point number two, the counselor's desperation. We've seen David's initial Assertion, his security is in God, but now we come to the counselor's desperation. The counselors who are with David are fearful for David's life. They tell him, as he quotes, flee as a bird to your mountain. And David is questioning them, how can you say that to me? They were concerned for his safety. And for good reason, too, as you go further down into verse 2, his counselors say, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string. And the idea here of, of bending the bow, it's, it's exactly what it says it is, bending the bow in preparation for an arrow. When I was in high school, we did some archery, and before we could begin, we had to bend the bow to ready it for the arrow. We would take it, put it on the ground, and push the top of the bow down so as to bring the string over, and then when we released the bow, there was tension on that string. And so the idea here is that the enemy, or the wicked in this case, as, as the psalmist says, are preparing to attack you. And the counselors are telling David, get out. Flee to your mountain. The Hebrew has the idea of, flutter, O little bird, to your mountain. Get away. The, the impending attack comes even closer. It says, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. 
And that's the end goal for the wicked here, to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. When you think of it, it's, it's like a sniper in today's day and age where he has his target in his scope and his finger is on the trigger. And they do so under the cover of darkness. They're hiding in the brush, just waiting to pull that trigger. But we need to note the object here in verse 2. What is it that the wicked shoot at? They shoot at the upright in heart. You see, the concern of David's counselor, while yes, it is for David's physical safety, he takes it a step further and he's concerned that the godly are under attack, that godliness itself is under attack, that the upright in heart, those who fear the Lord, are being attacked by wickedness, by evildoers. David's counselor is concerned because David is the Lord's anointed. And the counselor wants to protect the Lord's anointed. He wants to protect the upright in heart. But what we'll note here is that while the counselor's intentions are good, his his mindset is very wrong. You see, fleeing is not the problem here. There are many times that the righteous have to flee. David is a perfect example of that. He spends half his life running from Saul. Even the apostle Paul, we remember, was lowered in a basket out of the city so as to escape the angry folks who were there, the angry mob who sought to destroy him. It's not fleeing that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with fleeing. There are times when the righteous have to flee. The problem is that the counselor fears that the wicked will ultimately be victorious over the righteous. The counselor fears that the wicked will ultimately be victorious over the righteous. And this is what brings the counselor to the question that faces us in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The counselor He doesn't share in David's faith that we see in verse 1. The counselor's not saying, in Yahweh I take my refuge. He sees the rising troubles that sin causes. He sees the endless pain that the wicked can bring. And his first reaction is to run. To use our terms today, He wants to get to a safe space. He's admitting defeat to the wicked. 
When problems arise, when trouble closes in, when hope seems lost, he wants to retreat to his safe space, and he's telling David the same thing. Flee as a bird to your mountain. It juxtaposes the faith that David asserts in verse 1. Yahweh is my refuge. But the counselor doesn't see that. No, fleeing's not the problem. It's the counselor's mindset in fleeing. It's the fact that the counselor is more fearful of the wicked than he is confident in the refuge of God. So the question in verse 3 is now at the forefront of the counselor's mind and of David's mind as well. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so often, this is the looming what-if question in our minds. When the clouds of, of difficulty and pain and suffering set in, we feel like we're facing defeat. We feel like our backs are up against a wall. And we ask ourselves, what can we do? But it's here that the psalm turns a corner. It shifts from the counselor's desperation to David's affirmation. And that would be point number three, David's affirmation. We've seen his assertion, the counselor's desperation, and now David's affirmation. The counsel, being fearful of the wicked, has posed the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David, without hesitation, without a second thought, gives us the glorious affirmation that we see in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. David quickly speaks to the question that the counselor raises and says, God is in control. One quote I found says, while the counselor looks around fearfully, David looks up confidently. He's not concerned that the wicked are closing in because he knows that no matter what, God is sovereign. Notice what he says here. In verse 4, the language that he uses, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This language of a holy temple and a throne, it's kingly language. We understand that. And David is saying that God is the final ruler. He is sovereignly in control. He holds the world in his hands. But as we go further down, 
we notice he's also saying that God is present with them. The concept of a temple here, we remember, look back to your Old Testament, and we see the temple or the tabernacle in David's day. We know that while, yes, that represented God's sovereignty and God's control, it was the central focal point in Israel's camp. God was central, absolutely, but it also represented that God was present with his people. And David is saying that God is not only sovereignly in control over all the earth as he sits on his throne in heaven, he is also very much present with his people. So, dear ones, as we consider this, when it seems as if, as if no hope is left, when the evils of this world seem to close in around you, remember that God is in control and he is very much with you. He hasn't left his throne. He hasn't abandoned you to darkness. He is still and always will be sovereign over all. Notice the next phrase in verse 4. It says, His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. And this seems a bit odd for an expression. We understand the first part, that his eyes behold, but his eyelids test the sons of men? This, this isn't within our normal Bible vocabulary, if you will. But I think the best way to understand this phrase is not that his, his eyes are closed and, and he's looking around. No, it's that God is very closely looking at man, so close that you need to squint. He's looking so closely at man that it involves his eyelids to use a personification. And the idea is that God, in his sovereignty, is closely and intimately acquainted with every thought, every deed, every concept within the mind of man. Every small thing that man considers, every action of man is closely under the watchful eye of the sovereign God. And this concept is affirmed in Scripture. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. God is closely watching man. He is present with him. He is sovereign and he is closely scrutinizing everything, closely observing man, watching over him. 
And the psalmist takes it a step further in verse 5. In our New American Standard translation, it says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. A slightly better rendering of this verse would be that Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. I'll read that again. It says, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. The text for us most accurately creates two categories. Yahweh's testing of the righteous and Yahweh's hatred of the wicked and the violent. But we have to clarify this a little bit because as we saw above in verse 4, he tests the sons of man. God does test both the righteous and the wicked. But when God tests the righteous, it's for the purpose of refinement. This is what the word test means. It it has the concept of examination for refinement, such as precious metals going through fire so as to be refined and made better, made more pure. And for the righteous, this testing of God ought to drive us closer to God. The same word, the same concept is used when God tests Abraham. We all remember that story. When Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord, the Lord tested Abraham and found him to be righteous. And this was refining for Abraham's faith. It strengthened Abraham's faith in the Lord. There's a story of a forest that was grown inside of a dome, completely closed off. And scientists were able to regulate every aspect of the weather inside that dome, of the animals and creatures that lived in there. There was perfect weather every single day. It got rain at the appropriate times, and things grew up lavishly. Huge trees, tall grasses, very lush forest inside this dome. But they realized you could go into this dome and push over a tree. A tall tree standing 50 feet in the air, you could push over so simply. And the problem they had was that there was no wind. And since there was no wind to blow against the trees, the tree's roots had not dug down deep into the earth in order to withstand the wind. And in the same way, the testing of God is like the wind against the trees 
forcing the roots down into the earth. Forcing the righteous to rely more fully upon God, to dig their roots down further in faith, to use an analogy. This is the testing of the righteous for refinement. But the testing of the wicked results far differently. Take a look at verse 6. I'm sorry, the end of verse 5 there, and to use the previous translation that I read, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And when we look at that that terminology that's used there, fire and brimstone, it has a very ominous tone in our minds. Some of us have heard of the concept of fire and brimstone preaching. But we have to understand what David means by fire and brimstone, and so we have to look back in our Old Testaments Back to the first book of the Bible, where we understand the concept of fire and brimstone. We know the story well. Because God rained down fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. That's what is in David's mind as he considers fire and brimstone And I want us to notice the irony here. Because the righteous, in their testing, in their proving, in their refinement, we understand refinement to be like refined by fire. But yet here, the wicked, when the wicked are tested, there is judgment through fire. The righteous are tested and proved to be faithful through fire, while the wicked, God rains down fire upon them in judgment. So what does this, what does this show us? What is the point of David using this kind of language here? He's, he's building on the theology of God that he has so far. Remember, my goal is to show us a greater character of God, to look more closely at the character of God, and thus far, David has shown us several things. First and foremost, we see that God is sovereign over all things. He is supremely sovereign. He is king over all. We've seen that he is very closely present with his people. He looks closely upon them so as to test them. And thirdly here in David's list is that this is a God who judges rightly. He has perfect justice. While David's counsel frets about the looming shadow of the wicked and their destructive goals... David says that God is in control of the universe. 
He sees every minute thought of man and he will one day execute perfect justice upon the wicked. And while the wicked may work in darkness so as to overthrow the righteous, it is they who will be overthrown. And the reasoning in verse 7, it begins, For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. And this, this brings us full circle to God's actions toward, toward man. Let me explain, because we understand that he hates the wicked, but he loves righteousness. And while the wicked will be judged with fire and brimstone, verse 7 provides the concluding contrast. It says there at the very end, the upright will behold his face. David shows us not only his his current steadfast faith in God's sovereignty with his opening assertion that Yahweh, in Yahweh, I take refuge. Not only that, but David shows us that he has future hope in God's perfect justice that he will one day see God and be with God. This final culminating moment for David is when he gets to look upon the glory and the majesty of Christ. So, we return to our question. If the foundations are destroyed, what do you do? And David so clearly illustrates for us in this psalm that you look to Christ. He has already defeated sin and death on that cross and he will carry you through the difficulties, the pain, the sorrow, whatever turmoil this world throws at you, you can know that God is on his throne. He is sovereign. We're able to answer that question, the what-ifs in life that stand heavy over our minds. No matter what the outcome is, we know that we can trust in God. We know that he loves us, that he is intimately acquainted with us, that he cares for us. And so our hope can be in him. It's an upward perspective that we have to have like David had when his counselors fretted about that the wicked were closing in, that the righteous would be taken over, David looks up 
and says that God is still sovereign no matter what happens. That is our hope this morning. That is our joy this morning. Amidst pain and sorrow, we can know that God is on his throne and he does good for those who love him, even when it's hard. But friends, if, if you see the outworking of evil in this world, if wickedness seems to encompass you all about, and you can't say that God is my refuge, if you're not able to confidently say that my hope is in the Lord, Let me say this, you cannot run to anything on this earth that will give you the security and the hope and the peace that you long for. Only Christ can be your refuge. Only Christ can offer you true peace and joy. when we ask ourselves those difficult what-if questions. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if wickedness comes? What if I face trials that seem insurmountable, that I can't seem to overcome Friend, look up. There is a great and glorious Savior who loves you. Who died on the cross for you. To provide a way of salvation so that you can say, In Yahweh I take refuge. Turn to him. Run to him. For that is our only joy, our only peace. I read Psalm 46.1 earlier, and it's such a good passage. God is our refuge and strength, a very ready help in trouble. Let us confidently say amidst the difficulties of life, rather than running to our own securities, let us turn to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and he will refine us through the fire. Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice in the hope and assurance that we have in you. Lord, we know that there is pain, that there is hardship. But what an encouragement, Lord, to know that you are our refuge. 
guide us, strengthen us, encourage us through your word. May we seek the joy and peace that only you can offer. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We hunger and thirst for it daily. Lord, we pray that it would be written upon our hearts that we would seek to live in such a way that reflects the truth of your word, that glorifies and honors you even when the darkness seems to close in. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And it's, it's in the great name of the Lord Jesus Christ who has brought salvation to us who has given us renewed hope. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.